All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, you guys, introducing Ara Sanjian from the University of Michigan at Dearborn. And he is an associate professor of history, director of the Armenian Research Center there. How are you doing, sir? I'm fine, thank you. I uh, really appreciate me. you joining us today. So we have a very complicated but very important subject for people uh, to get caught up on here. And this is the perennial dispute over, uh, well, between uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia. And crazily and interestingly, both countries have enclaves inside the other country. So people think back to, you know, where we have West Berlin wholly surrounded by East Germany, that kind of thing. We have Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. This is the Armenian territory inside Azerbaijan. And then I forget the name of the one. That's the Azerbaijani territory inside Armenia. But they're always fighting. And the Americans and the Turks back the Azerbaijanis against the Armenians, who I think are getting the worst of this. Is that about right to get us started here, sir? Well, uh, to, to some extent, let's put this. Uh, the Nakhichevani enclave or exclave is part of Azerbaijan although it is cut off by Armenian territory. So, illegally, internationally, it's Azerbaijani territory. Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh used to enjoy autonomy under the Soviet system within Soviet Azerbaijan. They were unhappy with their limited rights. In 1988, during the Gorbachev era, when there were promises of reforms, they asked to be transferred to become part of Armenia. And that was the beginning of the escalation of the conflict, which has been going on since then. Uh, and so technically, the international community recognizes Nagorno-Karabakh as part of Azerbaijan. And since 1991, Azerbaijan John does not recognize the autonomous nature of Nagorno-Karabakh. It abolished it unilaterally as the war was going on. Mm -hmm. And so that is the legal situation. So still Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh think that they have no future uh, if they continue to be living under Azerbaijan. And at the moment, they are shielded from the Azerbaijanis by a small contingent of Russian peacekeepers, which have been there since the year 2000. Uh, to say that uh, America is actually supporting Azerbaijan in this particular issue, I will not go that far, although America supports Azerbaijan vis-a-vis -vis Iran, which is, of course, the southern neighbor of uh, both Azerbaijan and Armenia. Mm-hmm. Well, and is it fair to say, though, that Azerbaijan has had a government very friendly to the United States ever since the coup of 1993, uninterrupted all along, though, right? 
I'm I'm not sure, but Azerbaijan, of course, is is country of great interest to Western oil companies, yeah? yeah, because it is a good producer of oil, and now recently of gas as well, because its oil reserves are diminishing, and of course, those companies play a very important role in creating a favorable image for Azerbaijan outside Azerbaijan. Although Azerbaijan, at the same time, is one of the most vicious family dictatorships that we have in the world, the the ruling family has been in power ever since the Soviet days, since 1969, when the father of the current president became the uh, first secretary of the Communist Party in Azerbaijan. And of course, at the moment, president's wife is the vice president of the country. (laughs) Yeah, uh, it sounds about right. Um, It's funny the way the global democratic revolution only picks Uh, countries where the government is not loyal to the United States, but a place like Azerbaijan gets skipped right over for that. Um, So now it was 2020 was the last major conflict there, right? And then was you said the Russian peacekeepers have been there since 2000, though, but now there's just more. 2020. Oh, okay. 2020, since the end of that conflict. That's what I thought it was. Uh, Just a misstatement there. I want to clarify that. Okay, so then... um, but now there's some kind of siege and, and continuing conflict going on in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh right now, right? Yes. Uh, according to that, because t- technically uh, Nagorno-Karabakh has no land borders with the Republic of Armenia. Uh, it was shield- It is shielded by a s- short corridor. It's about maybe... Um, 15 miles or something like that. So it's not a huge distance. And so there's a road which connects it to Armenia. And ever since 1991, for all intents and purposes, economically, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh has been part of Armenia. I'm not saying legally, but economically. Uh, Karabakh is, of course, used Armenian passports when they fly out of the country. Uh, most of uh, Nagorno-Karabakh's relationship with the outside world is carried out via Armenia as well. And the Russian peacekeepers have to be there for an initial period of five years, which can be renewed according to that agreement. And in the meantime, of course, uh, the two sides uh, or, or well, in the two sides in this case, of course, are the Armenians and Azerbaijanis, because we have two different entities on the Armenian side. We have the government in Armenia, capital city Yerevan, and we have also an elected government in Nagorno-Karabakh, capital city Stepanakert. On some issues, they may not see eye to eye. I'm talking about the technicalities. But of course, both of them share that the intent of the Azerbaijani government is to ethnically cleanse the region of Nagorno-Karabakh. The problem has begun because the Russians have been reluctant to anger the Azerbaijanis. First and foremost, because Azerbaijan is backed fully by Turkey, and Turkey has now become extremely important for Russia in order to evade the sanctions and to create a, a, a separate economic environment where the Western sanctions would not apply. So essentially, the Russians are saying we don't have the right to use force. And that has given the Azerbaijanis to take certain steps, like trying to block the road by just sending in a couple of hundred of activists or whatever, which if it was, uh, for example, a demo in Moscow, it would have been cleared away in in 10 minutes. So, but uh, this political issue has actually blockaded Karabakh almost for 40 days now from the rest of the world. Yeah. Um, and then it's funny because it seems like it's a pretty severe crisis, but it's not getting too much coverage or, you know, is, is the European Union or the United States saying anything about it or this is all just 
Well, diplomatically, yes, there is intense interest, but for some reason, and I find it very strange, it is not being covered by the media. At the United States level, uh, the two top officials who are constantly involved in this are Jake Sullivan and Anthony Blinken, and of course, their uh, you know, subordinates, like in the State Department, USAID is also to some extent involved, and uh, uh, there have been no statements from the White House, but we've been told that the President Biden is also being briefed on what is happening. At the EU level, Charles Michel, the President of the European Council, is involved. France is involved very much. Of course, the Russians are involved, uh, but you don't see that kind of coverage in the media. Even Gutierrez, the UN Secretary General, he also issued a statement uh, calling Azerbaijan to um, to lift the blockade, but ultimately calls have not been enough. Baku basically said, thinks that he can ignore it. President Aliyev said in an interview, they call us, we respond to their, you know, calls uh, politely, and that's it. That was literally what he said in an interview at the end of December. Mm. And now we're not talking about an exceptionally wealthy area in the first place. What kind of effect is this having on the population there? For the time being, there is no starvation, but the, 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 the problem that it will soon be, if this one continues for another month or two, uh, it's a large agricultural area. Uh, it has a relatively vibrant agricultural economy, uh, and I will not say that living standards in Karabakh are lower than those in, in Armenia. In the last 30 years, the Armenian currency is used over there. Uh, and But the problem is that uh, it's not only the blockade, the Azerbaijanis, whenever possible, are also cutting the, the, the landline internet, and on and off they are cutting the gas supply. Mm. They are also preventing uh, extra uh, electricity coming from Armenia. The region can supply some of its own electricity, but not all of it. So uh, they're just trying to create a situation where people will be fed up and whenever they're fed up, they'll probably open the door and say, you can leave if you want to. I think that's the intention. They want to ethnically cleanse the area and to show to the Armenians how vulnerable they are. The world doesn't care about you. We can do whatever we like with you. I think that's the intention. Yeah. And they are benefiting yeah. from Russia's involvement in the, war of, uh, in the war in Ukraine. In what way? In the sense that the Russian prestige is now low. Russia cannot actually play a strong hand here uh, because ultimately Russia has become too much dependent on Turkey. I see. Uh, Will they become dependent on Turkey? I mean, uh, they, they have become dependent on Turkey as a way of, you know, communication uh, and also trade and also some banking, etc. And it's very, very important for the Russians. I see. Even though the Turks are helping arm the Ukrainian side in the war. Yes, that's that's a very kind of a strange balancing game that the two sides are. People are calling uh, the relationship between Erdogan's Turkey and Putin's Russia, and here the personalities are very very important mm -hmm. you know, uh, in this case as cooptation between comp cooperation and competition. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's certainly a complicated relationship. Okay, yes. so um, now. You talked about that area that is, I think you said, officially recognized as Azeri territory inside yes. uh, Armenia there. And obviously yes. this is overly simplified, but it's also the obvious thing. Why not just swap if you have these enclaves of people who refuse to accept the sovereignty of the nation states well, that they're stuck within? Well, why not just, sorry to use their term, cleanse both areas of each other, just swap and figure it out that way? 
as the compromise. Well, territorially, that will be a loss to Azerbaijan because ultimately both areas are Azerbaijani territory. Uh, and uh, of course, for Turkey, the existence that, of that. Except that, yeah. in a way, Nagorno Karabakh is not their territory. Like officially it is, but they're also this yes. autonomous zone this whole time and everything. So it's yes. kind of, you know. Uh, well, uh, first and foremost, I think it would be much better to come to an understanding that both minorities, you know, in this case can live peacefully. But sure. also, secondly, uh, the issue, the second issue is very important. Nakhichevan has a 12 kilometer, so we're talking about seven or eight miles, of a border with Turkey. That's the only border Turkey and Azerbaijan have. And it was there since 1921, uh, arranged between Kemal Atatürk and, of course, Lenin, when they were still in power, when they're still considered to be rogue entities, not internationally recognized. And so that's very, 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 very important. Otherwise, had not that small uh, borderline, uh, as I said, uh, 12 kilometers been existence, Nakhichevan would have been sandwiched between Armenia and Iran. Mm -hmm. So that will be a very... Now what Azerbaijan wants is Armenia to actually <clears throat> concede rights of total free passage via southern Armenia between Nakhichevan and uh, the, the rest of Azerbaijan, what we call the eastern part of Azerbaijan. Uh, and in that sense, of course, the Armenian government is saying it's our over-dead body because that will basically cut off Armenia, not only from Iran, but essentially from the whole Indian Ocean basis. Because most of Armenia's trade and relationship with many of the world goes via Iran through the Indian Ocean, as you remember, and especially to countries like India, China, etc. That route is very, very important to be connected to international trade. Hmm. Now, I am a master diplomat, but I don't have an easy solution here. Yes. Maybe, maybe the one-state solution will have Armenia and Azerbaijan join back together again, and then they'll have an extremely limited government whose only mandate is to protect everybody's rights and nothing else, and it doesn't even know anybody's ethnicity. Well, one religion. person who would like the old Soviet Union to come back, his name is Vladimir Putin. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, of course... For Vladimir Putin, he is even uh, not ready even to concede as much as the Soviets uh, did to the local cultures, etc. Because in the end, the Soviet state was federal with some kind of strong element of local culture being encouraged by the central government. No, of course, that will not be. Uh, unfortunately, nationalism is flying high in both countries, and there is a lot of intolerance. Uh, so at the moment, I cannot see any quick fix solution. Unfortunately, the resumption of war and trying to sort the conflict through military action seems to be much more likely than any kind of actual uh, peace being generated bilaterally between the Azerbaijanis and the Armenians in the area. Mm -hmm. Is it The problem is just that Armenia doesn't have enough oil. Armenia has no oil. Yeah, uh, not at all. It, it was because I know there's a gas. huge there's a huge Armenian population in the United States. I know just in Los Angeles, yeah. there's enough to elect or unelect any congressman or senator in California that they want, you know, or at least in that part of California. Um, and you know, it's like Koreatown, it's Armenia Town, it's a huge part of LA. Um, and so we saw like Nancy Pelosi went to Armenia and said, "Look at me, I love the Armenians and all this stuff." But at the end of the day, that doesn't amount to anything. Right. At the end of the day, America chooses Azerbaijan and is not willing to stick their neck out. It's the Russians, if anybody's going to help the Armenians, not the Americans here. Well, uh, this is this is the major dilemma that Armenians are facing. Uh, 
Over many, many years, Armenians had believed that it is in Russia's interest to actually uh, support Armenia if the Russians want to have a foothold in the south of their to the south of their country. Uh, and probably this changed because Vladimir Putin took a very anti-Western stand and Vladimir Putin is now wanting to create a counter-block anti-Western. Armenians are stuck in the middle of this. Uh, you know, Armenians and their neighbors to the north, the Georgians, are Christians. They have been Christians since the 4th century. Uh, and uh, as Christians, they have readier, uh, psychologically, they are readier in order to learn from European societies. And for many, many years, Armenians didn't see much of a difference between the West and the Russians. Uh, because Armenians used to live in the 19th century, both in the Ottoman Empire and also in the Persian Empire, and then the Russians came, came in and occupied that sector of what was formerly the Persian Empire. And so when in the 19th century, you know, this modern nationalism that we now live in started to develop, Armenians in the Ottoman Empire started looking to France as a model, uh, while Armenians living in now the Russian part of Armenia looked to, of course, Russia and via Russia to Germany. And for many, many years, so for Armenians, this kind of westernization, modernization came via two routes, and they didn't see these things as contradictory to one another. What is actually happening now is that Vladimir Putin is trying to put a sharp divide of either or. Either you are with the Russian, let's say, civilization, or you are with the Western civilization. And that really puts a big pressure on the Armenians, because traditionally Armenians have always wanted and have always try to be good with every with with all you know western powers and also with russia for armenians the arch enemies are the turks and now the azerbaijanis and nobody else uh, in in that sense uh, and that has of course become very very problematic for up until the 2020 war, Armenians made a lot of concessions, even economically, to Russians, hoping that by they being part of the Russian version of NATO, what is called the CSTO, will protect them. Now they have come to realize that the Russians are not ready to shoot a single bullet for that. And Armenia is desperately looking for alternatives, which also includes gradually trying to improve relations with the West. Those relations had remained limited because the Armenians understood that going too far to the West may actually antagonize the Russians. Uh, and now, of course, they feel freer to do this. Of course, it will be years for the West to have a kind of e equal influence compared to the uh, Russian influence in the region, which is two, a few hundred years old by now. But essentially, the Russians are also very unhappy with what the Armenians are trying to do. Like, for example, trying to establish better links with the European Union. Relations with America have rel relatively improved over the last couple of years, etc. So all these things, because that constraint was geopolitical, uh, uh, this idea to keep the Russian troops inside the region for protection, and they suddenly they see that that is no uh, uh, <clears throat> factor on which they can rely on. So unfortunately, other than that, today's Russia doesn't have much to offer for, any for the country's modernization. So most of the models that the Armenians will have to look for will be towards the European Union and America. Of course, traditionally, links with the European Union have been much, much deeper than America. And of course, for that, the geographic factor is, of course, uh, very essential. But ultimately, there is some progress. Whether that will be enough uh, to check 
the Azerbaijanis and the Turks? Uh, I, I really don't know. In September of last year, Azerbaijani tried a large-scale attack, but it was stopped within, within less than 48 hours. But even in those 48 hours, Armenians lost 200 or more troops. If you compare that to the size of the country and America, that would have been something like 15,000 American soldiers in uh, 36 hours, you know, uh, in that kind of situation. And the way the information was leaked by the Armenian government, they basically said that it was Antony Blinken who stopped to a telephone call rather than anybody else. Mm -hmm. So at this moment, uh, there is a wider section of Armenian society who wants better ties with the West. But of course, the problem is, is the West ready to uh, commit resources to countries like Georgia and Armenia, who are very, you know, in a very precarious condition, sandwiched between Russia in the north, which is ultimately looking to much more better ties with the uh, powers in Asia. And of course, to the south of Armenia, you have a large chunk of, you know, countries which are mostly Muslim. And so, of course, that's a, some kind of a very difficult cultural divide uh, to bridge uh, in a way. And although politically Armenians have no problem with any of the Arab countries in that sense, and they have a good working relationship with Iran uh, at the bilateral uh, level. Uh, but in the end, of course, Turkey is the major a strong power in that region, and it has a very ambitious president who wants to spread Turkey's influence wherever that is possible. Hmm. Sorry, hang on just one second. Hey, y'all, Scott Horton here for Tennessee Hot Sauce Company. Man, this stuff is so good. They get all different flavors. Garlic habanero, honey habanero, pineapple habanero, poblano jalapeno, and the blood orange ghost. They're all so good, I swear. And for a limited time, Tennessee Hot Sauce Company is featuring official Scott Horton Hotter Than the Sun thermonuclear hot sauce. It's full of Carolina Reapers, Scorpion Peppers, Dr. Pepper, Hydrogen Isotopes, and all kinds of things that'll burn your tongue clean off. Seriously, it's really good. Get yourself a hot sauce subscription. Spend $40 or more and use promo code SCOTT to get a free bottle of Hotter Than the Sun hot sauce. That's tnhotsauceco.com. Hey, y'all got to check out these awesome busts of our hero, the great Ron Paul. They're made by the renowned sculptor Rick Casali. They're 13 inches tall, hand-painted bronze resin based on Casali's brilliant original. Y'all may have seen mine in the background on my bookshelf in some recent interviews. The thing is unbelievable. Check out this incredible piece of art at rickcasali.com slash ronpaul, and you'll see what I mean. Use promo code Horton and you'll save 25 bucks, and this show will get a little kickback too. That's rickcasali.com slash Ron Paul. Casali is C-A-S-A-L-I. rickcasali.com slash Ron Paul. And there's free shipping, too. Uh, you know, I was reading this thing about Erdogan and his, uh, you know, uh, heightened rhetoric lately talking about referring to Armenians as the leftovers of the sword. Is that right? And what does that mean? Uh <clears throat> Uh, I, I'm not sure about that particular uh, passage. I don't want to quote on that because I don't really know the exact context of what it was said. But ultimately, Erdogan has been in power for some now 20 plus years now. Yeah, And if we look at his record, for the first 10 years, he was relatively quite liberal. And to some extent, Armenians benefited from that liberalism. It became possible, at least for a minority in Turkey, to talk about what happened in 1915. Nowadays, it is possible to publish books in Turkish with the word genocide being used in it. They are not being banned. Although the number of the literature which supports the other state 
preferred option, of course, are there. Uh, and to some extent, uh, uh, the small Armenian community which still lives in Turkey uh, feels itself slightly freer under Erdogan. But all this has changed in the opposite direction since 2015. That year, as uh, Erdogan came very close to losing power, his party did not win a majority in the parliament. So it basically heightened the internal political tension, created a new front against the local Kurds, rushed into another election so that with the uh, nationalistic hype, he of course got the majority back and his party is now basically ruling, allied to a small but very uh, extremist, expansionist, what we call pan-Turkish uh, party. And their votes are very, very important for Erdogan to survive. And he has elections, of course, next year, which are very, very, very crucial uh, in, in Turkey. And so uh, since 2015, Erdogan thinks that nationalist rhetoric helps him uh, maintain influence inside Turkey. And of course, he wants to project the image of a powerful Turkey, which is a regional player. It is interfering in many countries neighboring Turkey, uh, from Libya to Nagorno-Karabakh, etc. But this has been at the cost of a very uh, difficult economic situation. The price of the Turkish pound has plummeted. The country, uh, there is a very high inflation rate. And, you know, most of the people are feeling the pressures of that economic uh, decline. So next year's elections will be very, very crucial. I have some friends in Turkey who even think that uh, Erdogan may not even hold elections by trying to engineer a crisis so that under that pretext you could say that the time is not right to have now elections because it's a 50-50 situation. Uh, he may actually lose power. There is a coalition which is being formed against him because in the end, when you're in power up for 20-22 years, you create a lot of rivals. And of course, it's time for those rivals to come up together. If they bring down Erdogan in the elections, how much Turkey's foreign policy will change, that's anybody's guess at the moment. Yeah, I guess. But it also seems, sorry, it also seems that Putin will be interested to have uh, Erdogan back in power because he cannot be sure that the next government will continue to oppose the Western approach uh, to Russia after the Ukraine war. Mm. Well, it used to just be that the Americans really owned the Turkish military and what they're the ones who really coined that phrase, the deep state in Turkey, and they would just overthrow and do a coup against any president who got out of line. But that hasn't really worked with Erdogan. I think they tried to overthrow him a couple times. But well, there was a coup in 2010 in 2016. We don't know who exactly what it was. He used the coup in order to silence his internal critics, both within his Islamist movement and also the more liberal wing in the country together. I think 22 years is a long period of time and he has managed to change quite a lot in the army's top brass. And so now many of the uh, people in commanding uh, uh, positions in the uh, army's hierarchy uh, uh, probably share his own visions rather than those secular Turkish nationalism that was there starting from the time of Kemal Atatürk up until the time when Erdogan got to power mm -hmm. some 20 years ago. Yeah. So, yeah, those days are over is where I was going yes. with that. Yeah. Uh, for example, let me just say, because I did my PhD on Turkey, and that was now 30 years ago. Uh, and at that time, one of the most quoted phrases by Turks was a statement by Kemal Atatürk. He said, peace at home and peace abroad. And that was being interpreted as Turkey being a status, status quo power, which doesn't want change in any borders. Now, Turkish troops are 
to some extent direct or indirectly in Libya, in Syria, in Iraq, in Nagorno-Karabakh, etc. The Turks have created some kind of a mercenary army uh, among the rebels in northern Syria. They're shifting them from one place to another uh, to become cannon fodder. Uh, some 500 Syrians were killed in the Karabakh war in 2020, uh, you know, because the Azerbaijanis used to send them as the first frontline troops, thus reducing the Azerbaijani casualties. Uh, so in that sense, of course, it's a much more adventurous uh, policy that Erdogan is following, which is very, very different from the policies of successive Turkish governments from 1923 to the year 2000. Hmm. Uh, speaking of which, and just shooting in the dark here, any chance you know about a Turkish role in the attempted coup in Kazakhstan a year ago? Uh, no, I don't want to comment on this because my knowledge of what is happening in Kazakhstan is extremely limited. Oh, okay. Because um, it, one thing that was obvious at the time was you had some real protests that had been sparked by uh, a cut in the fuel subsidies, and then all of a sudden you had these apparently highly trained teams of armed men taking out banks and airports and police stations and this kind of, it looked like somebody had sent them. I don't think we ever got to the well, bottom one, of who they Scott, were. One thing that I can assure you is that Turkey is trying to use the economic uh, growth that it enjoyed up until very recently uh, to use the same soft power tactics in different parts of the world. Uh, and of course, Central Asia is very important because most Turks know that some of their ancestors came from Central Asia. That was over a thousand years ago, of course, in any case. And there are still some similarities between the languages sp uh, spoken in Turkey and also in Central Asia, because all of them uh, originate from one core, you know, uh, proto-language. Mm -hmm. uh, but Turkey is also trying to win friends in Africa as well. It's, uh, it's spending uh, quite a lot uh, in Africa to have some kind of friendship in the African countries to use them on the international arena, like, for example, votes in the UN uh, or attending functions that the Turkish government uh, wants a large number of countries to attend. So, uh, while I do not know whether they were directly involved in what happened in Kazakhstan on the ground, the fact that they're trying to create uh, a certain class of people in Central Asia, Kazakhstan included, which are favorably inclined to Turkey, that's something that they have been trying ever since the collapse of the Soviet system in 1991. Yeah. Uh, you know, there was a time when the Islamic State was doing so well with their help. I expected, more than half expected, that the Turks themselves were going to roll right into Mosul and say, thanks for taking Mosul for us and go ahead and expand the old Ottoman Empire into northern Iraq at that point. I, mm -hmm. It seemed clear that that was the plan for a minute. Maybe the Americans talked them out of it or something. I don't know about that, but certainly, of course, the Kurds in northern Iraq do have a lot of American support. Uh, they enjoy uh, quite uh, wide-ranging de facto autonomy, because now you have a very weak government in Baghdad compared to the days of Saddam Hussein. Turkey has been much more involved in northern Syria. In some areas of northern Syria, basically it has practically become Turkey with, with you know, the Turkish currency being used, etc. We know that a lot of, you know, uh, industrial infrastructure was looted in those areas that were fell out of the control of Damascus government and was taken to Turkey uh, from northern Syria. Uh, in that sense, I don't think that Turkey's position is actually to annex these countries, but essentially to become a very important player. And ultimately, two other regional countries, 
despite their rivalries with with Turkey, I'm talking about Russia and Iran, want to have this kind of a platform when they treat together, decide uh, what's going on in the region, uh, and by trying to keep all the Westerners, the Europeans, and the Americans out of it. Now, in this kind of situation, countries like Georgia and 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 as uh, and Armenia will be at a very difficult. Uh, situation because ultimately they don't fit into the uh, Putin's understanding of what Christian orthodoxy should look like, which was to become anti-Western, and technically they are not Muslims as well. So uh, in the Caucasus, Turkey and Russia are talking about what was called a three plus three platform. The three big three will be, of course, Russia, Turkey, Iran. The the the, the three minors will be Georgia, I mean Azerbaijan. The Georgians have been very reluctant. They have opposed participating. Armenia has said yes, only not to antagonize Russia, but with no intention at all to actually uh, to try to uh, make this framework work because they think that it will work against their own interests. Yeah. Well, in the sense of just angering the Americans? Uh, no, I think for, for Russia and Iran, it's very, very important to diminish America's role on the globe. Uh, and for uh, Erdogan, I think it's more opportunistic, try to make the best out of... I meant for Armenia, uh, why they'd be worried to do it, to go along with them. Uh, because they will think that, you know, the Russians will try to compensate Azerbaijan and Turkey at the expense of Armenian interests to keep them happy. Yeah. All right, well, listen... Uh, oh, this, this word that we don't want to be used as small change is often used by Armenian pundits when they talk about uh, analyze. But of course, diplomats don't use that kind of word, but, you know, TV personalities, TV anchors, experts interviewed use that. Right. Uh, it's tough because it just sounds like Armenia doesn't really have any cards to play here. They're just stuck between all these powers, Not right? Much. Not much. Uh, the major thing is that Armenia can become a very important north-south highway, and that's why they are very much afraid that the Azerbaijanis will try to cut that. They feel that the Russians also want to come as intermediaries and act as the arbiters and actually take the control of that highway, which will cut across Armenia. But that will bring down a lot of plans, uh, especially plans which India is pursuing. And Armenians are seeing a lot of potential in that so that there will be some kind of a very important trade route, uh, which starts from India uh, via the Indian Ocean. Uh, crosses uh, Iran, then enters Armenia, Georgia, and then, then of course, it divides into two lines, one going north to Moscow, the other one going, of course, to Europe, the Balkans and, and the rest of Europe. Uh, in Armenia, there's a plan that was called the North-South Road. Uh, it has been going on for years. It hasn't been what, gone much forward. The Russians have been reluctant to endorse it. Uh, but now that southern sector is uh, they're trying to build it as quickly as possible. The tenders have been announced, uh, and so probably they're receiving bids. I don't know when they will actually give it to which countries. And, and uh, the ministry, which is in charge of that, is telling that they have bids from various countries, from from West from Western Europe, from Iran, uh, and, and other the local smaller contractors, etc. I, I think that is what they hope that they will, will keep the country as a stable country, as an important trade route, and that may keep the, the Azerbaijanis and the Turks out of it. That's probably what they're trying uh, to do. And the last two years have seen very intense deepening of relations between Armenia and India. Mm -hmm.
And now, so back to where we started here, just to wrap up, the people of Nagorno-Karabakh, if, you know, the Azerbaijani plan is to just make them at least so hungry, if not starving and so miserable that they are then allowed, quote unquote, forced out, cleansed out of there. Um, Is there any other really, you know, countervailing force against that policy right now that can prevent that from happening? I mean, the Russian peacekeepers are there, but I guess they're just standing there. They don't have the mandate to break that corridor open or to trade or anything like that, right? Well, about the mandate, someone said, did they have the mandate to shoot in in, in, in uh, Ukraine? So it's wow. not an issue of not having a mandate or not having a mandate. Wow, uh, a ultimately, the Although, I mean, problem, if they're pretending to go along with deals that they made, in some yeah. cases, you know, not everything yeah. is war, but I understand what you're saying. Uh, but uh, ultimately, the pressure should be international. And there are a couple of things, of course, which has to be taken into consideration. One is a very important principle of international relations since the Atlantic Charter, that, you know, you cannot actually change borders. But does that give the right to any government to ethnically cleanse part of its population of a certain undesirable group? And this will be an issue. Uh, So there should be some kind of an international involvement to try to find a solution. At the moment, there were, at least a few weeks ago, two uh, possible solutions. And Armenia is ready to go with either of them if it were, if they work. Although, of course, they have different agendas. Russia is saying, let's postpone the issue and uh, let's make things uh, cool down and then we can have a more cool-headed decision. And the Armenian government said, okay, if you want to stay, uh, let's not do it for five years, let's do it for 20 years so that people will uh, go on with their own lives and not be fearing about what will happen within two or three years' time. Uh, and then we can sit down, just go and tr- try to convince the Azerbaijanis. And of course, Azerbaijanis said no, they don't want the Russian troops in and they want them to go out. And in the year 2025, they will have the right to actually ask them to leave. The American position seems to be that let's find a solution so that Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh and the government in Baku should sit face to face with international participation to sort out some kind of a deal. And of course, Azerbaijan says, no, they are my own citizens. I'm not ready to discuss any specific deals for them. They can enjoy the rights that every other citizen in in Azerbaijan does. But here, of course, come two problems. People in Azerbaijan do not enjoy much rights. And international uh, organizations which monitor Azerbaijan give them a very bad record. Even when Armenia was in bad times, its record was much higher. And actually, since a number of years, Freedom House also monitors Nagorno-Karabakh's human rights situation inside. And it is somewhere in between Armenia and Azerbaijan. So people at the moment in Nagorno-Karabakh have much more civil political rights, actually, than do people living in Baku. Secondly, there is intense anti-Armenian propaganda in Azerbaijan, wiping out of old Armenian monuments, uh, even actually having things in the textbooks which are very clearly anti-Armenian. How would you expect a population to be citizens and read textbooks when they are identified as the enemy? How quickly will Azerbaijan change that attitude? Will it be easy to change the attitude that you have fostered for something like 20 years? So these are very, very difficult questions uh, if there will be to be a negotiated solution acceptable to everybody. All right, you guys, that is Ara Sanjian. He is an associate professor of history 
at the University of Michigan at Dearborn. Thank you, sir. Appreciate your time. Thanks for this invitation to talk to your program. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., APSradio.com, Antiwar.com, ScottHorton.org, and LibertarianInstitute.org.